I love it. I love it. You know, I just want to devote it all my life to the Cooks River. We're at a salt marsh on the banks of the Cooks. The tidal river runs from Laguna and Sydney's southwest to Botany Bay, emptying into the ocean just next to the airport. I find it so pleasant when you're working with the people, nice people, always nice people around it, yeah. And so you're weeding, what are you, what are you pulling out here? This is a farmer's, oh, uh, farmer's oh, friend. Oh, oh, yeah, you, yeah look at that, very spiky yeah. and then it's no good because when they're flowering and seeding. It's about it's nine o'clock on Sunday morning and Simon is standing in waist-high grass pulling out weeds that cover her in thistles and burrs. Make room for the other native plants. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so a lot of people find weeding a bit boring or like ugh, annoying. It is. It is very good. It's like addictive to things to doing that. It's uh, actually it's the uh, therapeutic. You know, just for the mental issue. If you got some things and then it's you know slowly, slowly released the negative energy. I'm Sarah Allerley. I'm Olivia Rosenman, and this is Brain on Nature, a podcast about the benefits of spending time in the natural world. Whirling around, the in this episode, we're going to hear about the Cooks River mud crabs and how volunteering for a local environmental organisation can help deepen your connection to nature. How can that relationship become two-way? The next step is giving back. A few weeks after meeting Simon at the Salt Marsh, we rode our bikes along the river to meet her and her friend Farah in Campsie. They both volunteer for the Mud Crabs, an organisation that rehabilitates the river and regenerates the bushland around it. The Cooks was once Australia's most polluted river, but the Mud Crabs have been working for years now to change that. We saw all this rubbish, so we thought maybe we can help to clean up the river. All I want to do is to to have that, that feeling of connection that, um, um, because love is not just a word, it's more like an action for me. And to show your action, you got to do something about it. One of the main activities the mud crabs organise is a volunteer army of litter pickers who scour the banks of the river, picking up endless tides of trash in and around the water. In making this podcast, we were inspired to join them. And in doing so, we discovered just how addictive and satisfying collecting rubbish can be. I do it um, most of the day. I take my plastics to plastic uh, shopping bags, and I just uh, fill it in, and maybe every day two plastic bags. Farah and Simon met at their local campsy shops. When I was in the shopping centre, and I saw uh, somebody say, talking Persian with, I think Farah, she was with her sister talking Persian. And then I said, oh, are you Persian? Farah, she said, yes, I'm Persian. Where do you live? She said, in the Gould Street, the same street I yes. live. And then so, yeah, just we start to get the friendship together. Their friendship developed on the banks of the river. 
We talking together about the, you know, the river, how helpful. We are very lucky. We have this in Camp Seed. I said, we are so lucky. We have to do some things. And uh, one day I was passing there. I saw the um, mud crabs group and they cleaning up the river. And We're sitting here drinking tea with Simon and Farah in Simon's lounge room. And in front of us, there's a spread of sweet biscuits, cakes, baklava, and a special Iranian fruit leather. When I moved into Kamsi was 2010. Um, and I was working at that moment. So uh, I didn't have uh, any free times. So I started walking on uh, the river and I fell in love with the river. Uh, felt a really big connection with the river and I saw the river and I said, what can I do that um, really um, f- feel that connection even more? So Simin and I, we, we sometimes we were walking and we saw this mud crab people working. I think it has been three years. F- no, no, four, five years. I think five years. Five years, yeah. Back then, Farah was working as a midwife, but she's since retired. Now she dedicates much of her time to rehabilitating the river with the mud crabs. They really know the nature or uh, they have really knowledge about uh, biology or animals or uh, water creatures. So it really gives you a lot of information that you really didn't know before. So a new person comes, I can actually explain to them and say, oh, I didn't know this before. So I'm kind of becoming a connection between people and those experts. So the young people come and um, I tell them which one are the weeds and which one you know how to plant it and how far do you have to go and a lot of things I can tell them because unconsciously you're learning so much. What's your dog's name, Simon? Uh, it's a Pashmak. As well as litter picking, Simon and Farah are regulars at bush regeneration sessions, weeding, planting, watering to restore the natural ecosystems along the banks of the river. You learn a lot about the nature and how, and it makes your brain its very flexibility, open of the diversity of the lives in the world. And this is, makes me happy. I always look at the river as a, my mother um, or the earth mother. Uh, I don't know, I never looked at it scientifically. And all I wanted to do is to, to have that connection. Back at the salt marsh, we're getting the introduction to the site from the site coordinator. This used to be a tip, uh, sorry, originally it was a beautiful salt marsh, but then when white settlers came, a marshes and all this were regarded as wasteland, so then it became a tip, up in the, especially in the 50s, and then about early 2000s, the then Canterbury Council, they've taken it out, bulldozed it out, and allowed the natural process of nature for the salt marsh species to colonise. This is Russell Kayer. He used to work in biotechnology, but since he's retired, he leads the volunteers who meet once a month at the salt marsh to restore its complex ecosystem. But from the river margins, up sort of where the tide actually floods the the area on a continuous basis, you'll get this low-growing thing called beaded glasswort, samphire, or Sarcocornia australis. And um, in other areas uh, where it's not contaminated, 
uh, it is um, sometimes used as a garnish on, on foods and things. Russell guided a group of us to remove the invasive weeds to allow these natives to flourish, along with some other more unusual obstacles. Yes, Colin. You were getting more tropical, but I wasn't expecting this <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know if That's I a coconut. Pick it up or not. Yeah, that? pick it up. It's rubbish. rubbish. It's yeah, a co- was that water. actually a coconut? It's come in from... It's a, yeah. looks like you a look mini coconut. I looked yeah. at that and I said, is this nature's or not? <laughs> no, nothing well, to do with someone's nature, nature, just not Nothing this. to do with us. Hang on, I think <laughs> I'm standing on a bit of sarcocornea. So, um, getting back to the... Um, what makes it a salt marsh, which we were just going through, it then grades in. As it gets drier, we've got native cooch over here, and there's a margin of the uh, reeds. Uh, in this particular case, it's mostly a, a genus called Juncus. And then the other lighter green colour... This here. is one of 12 bush care sites along the river, and that's a number that's growing all the time. We just opened a new one last month, and the one before that we only opened probably three or four months before. That's Peter Munro. My role with the mud crabs is um, nefarious, I suppose. Um, <laughs> I've, I've been involved from the very beginning, but it's multifaceted. Peter's a retired psychologist and dedicates much of his time and energy to regenerating the Cooks River. We moved here in 2004 and discovered the river, like many others. Hadn't, I mean, I've lived in Sydney a lot of my life and hadn't... I'd heard of the Cooks River, but ne- I knew nothing about it. And very quickly we started walking along the river and we saw this man who was Chris Bartlett. We didn't know that, but he was there picking, pulling rubbish out of the river. There was lots of it. Well, it was, um, it was dreadful. It was a sea of plastic bottles. Um, all the mangroves at low tide were just littered with literally a sea of, of bottles and rubbish and bags. And Chris um, lived across the other side of the road. He was, he's quite, was, was quite an eccentric man. He died in... 2012, he was a guy that just did it. And so he started going down by himself, only rode a push bike and had a whole lot of stuff, bags and grabbers and things. And we saw him pulling litter out and asked him what he was doing. And he said, oh, I do this regularly to try and get rid of some rubbish. So he said, if you like, I'll take your phone number and ring you next time. So he started gathering people that started coming along. Chris was a meticulous record keeper. And after every event, he would go back home and he'd write the name of every person that came, um, if it was a clean-up, what was taken out of the river, the number of bags, if it was a planting event, every single tree that was planted, the name of them in Latin. Very quickly, that group started to grow and Chris would be ringing 50 or 60 people on a Friday night to say, I'm going down to um, Boat Harbour tomorrow morning at 8 o'clock if you want to come along. And I suggested to him that we should start using email. And um, <laughs> What year was this? Uh, 2004. It's amazing how many people don't actually know about the Cooks River. Yeah, it, it's interesting because it is very narrow um, and there's not a lot of bridges across it. There's the Tempe Bridge and the Illawarra Road Bridge and then you go right up to, you know, there's not many car, car roads across it. So... It's not a sense of, um, yeah, it's quite enclosed and, and, and um, locked, locked away in a sense. It's sort of like you have to almost form a relationship with it to mm. fall in love with it and engage with it. I feel like you need to sink into it to appreciate it. Yeah, and I think out of that same concept comes the idea, the, the, the drive to help it, 
to rescue it, to do something, to be active and to be instrumental in, in its recovery. I think that you know, once you get to know the river, you, you want to do something. You, you don't want to just, um, I think I'm extrapolating to others, but me, I don't want to just enjoy it. I want to be instrumental in undoing the damage that's been done and, and caring for it. So you've been here almost 20 years. How have you seen the river change over that time, the river itself, but also the way that it's used by the community? The most dramatic change is, one, the, the removal of the litter, the, the fact that, you know, that the container deposit came in, scheme came in, and there was a, almost um, you know, a very quick change in the floating litter, which was mainly bottles. The other thing is the, the number of people that use the river has gone up exponentially, um, and much more so since COVID. There's, you know, the number of people along the river just exploded and people being out in, in nature. <laughs> it's interesting. Um, I, was, I was involved in a meeting recently and Sydney, someone from Sydney Water was there and they were saying that the Cooks River is the most engaged community, any of the, the water courses that Sydney Water has to deal with. They've got the most switched on and connected community. Um, they said it's quite noticeable that it's a highly um, active, aware and switched on community. Pretty much every weekend, and even some weekdays too, you can find mud crabs working at the Cooks River. Some of them have grown up along the Cooks. No, but when I was like a child in primary school, like there was a ton of rubbish in the Cooks River. Yeah. And yeah, and well, I, I guess I sort of feel nostalgic about that, and I'm sort of surprised to see how clean it is now in comparison. We met a real range of ages. I assume when I spotted high school student Kevin weeding on a Saturday, that he'd been dragged along by a parent, but he was actually there on his own steam. It's really enjoyable, it's relaxing, and otherwise I probably wouldn't wake up at 8 o'clock in the morning on a Saturday. I live alone and I live in a flat, and, you know, I'd go nuts if I didn't have this at the end of my street. I'm standing with the mud crabs at another site in Hurlston Park. It's a sandstone outcrop higher up on the banks where a footbridge crosses the river. And the mud crabs itself are so, um, they're so accepting and, and inclusive. You know, like you can come as much or as little as, and as I'm getting older I seem to be coming less. It's a bit naughty of me, but anyway. Yeah, you just forget yourself and your troubles for a while, you know, a couple of hours and... And, I mean, the change we've made here, it's just fantastic. My name's Judy Seaburn, and I just live in Ford Avenue there. Tell me what you saw before. Oh, just, um, well, this was just just a bit grass and weeds, but also rubbish. You know, people would um, just drop, drop their rubbish here. And even, you know, like they'd wheel their wheelbarrow and drop the dump the rubbish over the cliff it was shocking um, and so now people are more aware of that like if that happened so it just doesn't happen anymore because I think people are much more caring about it all well describe to things. me so before it was just grass and people would dump their rubbish and what are we standing in amongst mm. now tell me what you what oh, you've, what you've okay. helped create oh well it's a little bushland yeah you know that was um uh, Doug's idea was not so much a little garden as just bring it back to bush. That's why it's really thick. There are lots of undergrowth, 
the, the grasses and then the different trees. And the smaller trees for the birds, you know, there used to be um, wrens here and then they disappeared because they're too small. And the, the wagtails too, I think. Um, the big birds would just chase them off. And now they're back because they love these little bushes with the prickles. Gives them, you know, gives them protection. Yeah, yeah, so they love these. So, yeah, like the first time it was after a mud crab's thing and then Liz suddenly saw this blue wren and we all went, ah, it was really exciting. I push through the dense shrubs to find more volunteers enthusiastically pulling out invasive species. What motivates you to come and do this on your Sunday morning? Uh, well, I think at the moment I'm not doing, like I'm not doing full-time work, so it's nice to fill a bit of time and it's nice to yeah, like be a part of the community and like get out and experience the sort of natural environment that I live around because I do a lot of walks along the river and cycle around a bit. He's one of a newer breed of younger mud crabs turning up to help regenerate the Cooks River. My name's Kai Bollerup and I live up on the Canterbury Racecourse. What have you got in your bag there? So this is um what it was called turkey uh, weed? yeah tur- turkey, turkey weed. rhubarb turkey rhubarb yeah yeah and it's just got like massive tubers yeah it takes a good while to like get to the very bottom and dig out like a huge tuber but i feel like it's very satisfying when you actually do it oh I, i'm doug benson i'm actually a, a bo- i've been a botanist all my life and so um and i'm a local here and uh part of my encouragement here was that as a botanist i wrote things that gave people, told people what to do without doing a lot of it myself except in my garden. And this has been a chance for me to put into practice these things and to modify them and so on as they go along. So I've thoroughly enjoyed um, seeing the results over the 10 years here and another site and so on that we have. So it's, it's just been a really good learning experience. The mud crabs help educate the community about how the Australian bush is not tidy like an English garden. These bush care sites are being meticulously cared for, but to the uninitiated, they can look a bit unkempt. That it's not necessarily neat. Um, And it's spiky. We use things that are spiky and so on because they're good habitat for birds, protects the birds from cats and so on. Um, I think that it's nice for people to see that. In a sense, it's glorified gardening, but you do get a lot from it because it's gardening that's not directional. You're not trying to end up with a row of camellias neatly pruned along here. You're trying to let nature run through and see what happens. So when the drought, when these things die, and we had a big banksia die, we just say, well, that's it. it. It got to the stage. It was growing in a spot where it wasn't wet enough to cope with the drought, and it died. But we've got another one over there, and that one's doing okay. Doug literally wrote the book about the Cooks River plants. It's called Missing Jigsaw Pieces, the Bush Plants of the Cooks River Valley. So he's super passionate about the bushland returning to the area. I, I, I live for that. I, I, I was, at the age of five, I had a garden and a trolley. There's a picture of me with a trolley with a, with a succulent in it, carting it somewhere. I, I've, I've just lived with plants all my life. Uh, and when you get depressed these days because the world is a bit... Um, difficult when you watch the news every night. Uh, there's something about knowing that plants are, that nature is there, ignorant of what's happening on it because it doesn't care, it responds, but it's, there's, there's a lot of vitality in it. In a funny way, if we all disappeared, you can see what would happen. 
a lot of these plants would all survive. They'd be happy and spread them, bush ones. Some of the weeds would survive and spread too. And in the long term, a, a nature will take over a destroyed Sydney shore. I, you, you can just see a vitality in nature that's, that's, that's going to be there come whatever sort of disasters we provide. Um, yeah, yeah. So it's, it, 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 it's, it's a positive thing seeing plants grow. Um, that's all I can really say, isn't it? Thank <laughs> that's you. Part of us. No, that's lovely. Thank you for hearing <laughs> that. Did, did you want to speak to yeah, Liz? Yeah, I'll go and go have and a look. Yeah, yeah. Cool, thank you. She's, done, she's been here the whole time. Thank you, Doug. It's lovely to meet you. Doug sends me over to chat with Liz and she starts telling me a story about a weeding dilemma she had. In the middle of winter, I came and saw a Holland turkey rhubarb flowering, great bunches of it. So I just came in here and started pulling it all out. And then I looked up and there's a little nest sitting. Oh. And I realised the turkey rhubarb was a perfect camouflage for this nest. And I think it's probably last year's nest because it was the middle of winter. But I was mortified. And I went, oh. <laughs> two, two, I thought it was two little plastic balls, first of all, that some kids might have put in. And then I realised there were eggs. So then I kind of backed off and went and hid behind the wall over there to look and see if some distressed bird came. And I didn't ever see another bird there. Um, and a bit later on there was... I came, I crept back, I didn't like to go too close. I thought I could see some little furry thing, but I'm not sure it was very early in the year. That is a dilemma. A dilemma. So, How long have you been involved with this bush uh, care site? Probably about 12 years, 13 years, something like that pretty much since it started. And so. what have you seen, like, tell me what you see now compared to what you saw when you first started. Oh, it's completely, it's totally transformed. None of these, all these different variety of plants were not here. So we had to do re-vegetation here rather than regeneration because there's nothing around to regenerate from. It What's the difference between re-vegetation and regeneration? <clears throat> well, regeneration is where you can just stop interfering with the um, environment and then things will grow again. So there's some good examples of that in Walleye Creek where there's a lot of natural bushland still there and where they've had adjacent meadows which um, have been regularly mowed by the council, they've got the council to not mow certain areas and then there's enough bird activity and and seed um, um, dispersal that plants have just grown so that hasn't been planned or organised whereas we've chosen which plants we're going to put in here. We're using all the plants that are absolutely... um, from this area so we're very we won't put in coastal banks this year so we sometimes people come and offer us plants that don't really belong exactly here but we're a bit purist here under Doug's tutelage um, and try to cho- choose things that would create that habitat so for example for the wrens um, a lot of hakers a lot of best areas because they're both quite prickly um, the wrens like prickly plants do they they li- well they like them because of who they keep out yeah so right. they're small and they can get in so there's um you can imagine there's a Somebody who lives in the street who loves cats and her cats roam free, so um, trying to make an environment that's not very attractive for them is important. I wander back down the sandstone cliff to find Doug again. Anyway, we expanded along there and finally this end here was just a blackberry-covered weed-infested thing. So it's been really good. Has it? And do you notice it's... Um, that the biodiversity's improved? Yes, you get more yes, like... that's how we did it. Yeah. We had our performance indicator... <laughs> KPIs. Yes, our KPI was uh, wildlife birds when we see blue wrens come back, because there was not a blue wren here, you can imagine, mm. just grass, uh, and they like cover. 
And so after about four or five years, we did actually see blue wrens. They're now nesting here and we're now getting other things, other birds coming in as well. So yes, that worked. And the other KPI that I quite liked was that you could take a primary school group through and teach them ecology. So you could say, okay, here is the shady bit with the ferns and you can see it's wet and that's along here. And then you could take them up to the top and say, and here's the dry bit where you have different plants and here's the river with different plants. And it's actually works as you know you can you can use it in a, in a sort of environment so to teach micro, those micro, micro, of, micro, of, of environment, environment yeah, yeah. And, the, and the third thing was that people feel that it feels like the bush how do you measure the health of a river like this you measure it by the biodiversity you measure it by the what's in the water uh, how clean the water is um, and, and ironically, talking about people and nature, I think the, the worst thing for the river is people. And my, my, I've always advocated for parts of the river that are ex- humans are excluded from um, because we're just such a destructive um, species. It's interesting, the word nature, I, I've sort of a bit... Res- I, I, I resist that a little bit because it's used so... Um, ephemerally to, to, you know, people, I love nature. Um, what's, you know, <laughs> and I, but I think definitely there's no doubt that being out in, the, in a, uh, a natural environment, you know, with, with sun and grass and plants and wind and uh, et cetera, is crucial to it. I mean, that's, that's our DNA, I think, that's vital to, you know, if you want to destroy a person, lock them away at, out of contact with the natural elements. No doubt about that, that um, that's an important aspect of, of mental health. You know, when I lost it, my dad, I came to the nature, I was looking at the tree. I said, that's the big lesson. Losing is the part of the life. That's, that's right. it, it's helped me uh, for myself, you know, just for health, you know, for the mentally, it's helped me a lot. I just take this opportunity to thank you for the nature and the people involved with that, with the Cooks River. Thanks to the Inner West Council's Environment Grant for supporting this episode. And thanks to the Cooks River Valley Association. Special thanks to all the mud crabs for helping the river to thrive. This episode was hosted and produced by me, Olivia Rosenman. And me, Sarah Allerley. Sound engineer was Isabella Tropiano. Theme music by Jonathan Zenti. Don't fall back. I feel great. Flying astray. I'm not a
My business used to be weighed down by the complexities of in-person payments. Then, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe came along and changed everything. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, I streamlined my payment process effortlessly. Now I can accept in-person, contactless payments right from my iPhone. No extra hardware required. What's truly remarkable is how I can cater to all of my customers' payment preferences. Whether they're using cards, Apple Pay, or other digital wallets, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe ensure a smooth checkout experience every time. And it's not just me. Stripe helps businesses of all sizes, from local markets to global retailers, scale quickly and stay agile. To learn how Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe can help grow your revenue and reach, visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone. 